0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Let me welcome everyone to Citizens this morning. And if you're a guest with us, we are glad that you're here. Hope that you feel at home quickly. And um, if you're relatively new also, we just hope that you are feeling welcome, and that those of us who are veterans of citizens, which is less than two years old, so there is no veterans really, okay, that we are just meeting you and getting to know you. We're glad that you're here with us, and uh, we're glad that we can serve you. If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't already, and we're going to look at this passage. In um, Matt Chandler's book called Take Heart, He has an introduction where he talks about um, four different categories of Christians and the way that they relate to culture around them and to being a Christian in the world that they exist. And he has them, like a good preacher, starting with four C's, okay? And it goes like this. He says "There's, there's some people who are looking to convert the world around them. They're looking to not not the maybe the traditional way of conversion that you're thinking of it, but they're trying to change it and, and make it fit into the religious paradigm so that it kind of is a fit with the religious world. There's another group of people that are maybe on the condemning side, and so they sit uh, like the religious and look at the world and can stand to kind of Mark out its mistakes and condemn it, especially from the perspective of the religious perspective. And then the third one is one that is a consuming Christian that thinks they actually need to get as close as possible to the world. And what ends up happening is they just consume the world and they're kind of blending all right in with it. There's no difference. So you've got converting Condemning and consuming. And Chandler says in his book that all of them, all of those three, are born out of fear. They're rooted in fear. And he says, what we need today, maybe more than ever, that might be a stretch, but what we need today is the fourth sea, and it's the sea of courage the ability to stand courageously on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the reason why it takes courage is because Jesus's teaching goes straight to the heart of the matter. Most of us are pretty content with keeping things um, at a relative distance to ourselves. And we often just do that without even realizing it. We've probably, I know I did it already this morning where someone asks you, how's it going? And we just say, good, right? That's the response. How you doing? Good. We don't really want to get into the thick of what our week looked like, (laughs) you know, or maybe even what our morning looked like. That's for another time or maybe for people that are really close to us. But in general, we're trying to keep people um, at at a healthy distance from us Because to go into those deep places, like all of us know, is hard. It's challenging. And it's what Chandler says takes courage to step into. And as we look at the text today, this isn't the first time, but it's another time where Jesus, just with great clarity and with great courage, is saying, here's what it means to be a disciple and I've titled the message, Deep Discipleship, because Jesus wants, to, wants this uh, idea of discipleship and following him to go to the deepest places of our lives. And the question that we are left with, even as we enter into this text, is will we let him go there? Will we let the truth of Christ go to those deep places, the most intimate of places, Where we sometimes won't let even, in a funny way, we won't even let ourselves go there. And so we come to this text here where Jesus is challenged. So let's look again and we'll go through this passage verse by verse like we do most weeks. And as we come to the first few verses here that we see Jesus interacting with the religious leaders, we see that it begins with a testing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2 says this, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So here's Jesus. And if you've been tracking with us from the beginning of Mark, you know that from chapters 1 to about chapter 8, Jesus is beginning his ministry, he's teaching, he's he's healing people, he's doing all kinds of magnificent things. Mark doesn't explicitly say it, but the other gospels tell us that, you know, his following just increases and he's got all kinds of disciples. But here in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, it's a shift now where Jesus is really honing in on, okay, this is what it means to be a disciple, and in those chapters, there are three times where he's going to talk about and point to the cross. And that his road as the king leads to the cross. And as he's doing that, he's calling his disciples, the people who follow him, to a deep discipleship. To following Jesus, whether it is self-sacrifice or whether it's healing in all seasons. They're say, he's saying, will you follow leaders who are trying to trick him they're trying to catch him they're trying to test him in some way so that he will fail that he will falter that they could discredit his ministry whatever they can do to stop him and kind of rub this little movement out and move on past it that is their goal and so here they come and you see there in verse two that the pharisees came out in order to test him and that word, the Greek word there is pyrazo. Okay, I'm sure you use that word this week. Pyrazo, which means to, it has a number of meanings, and let me read them to you. To to understand what the Pharisees are actually doing here. Okay? The word means to submit another or another person to a test, or it also means to learn the true nature or character of the thing that's being tested. In this case, it's Jesus. In different instances, it also can be translated as something to attempt to catch in a mistake or to test for purposes of making one sin. So the word that is used here by Mark for what they're doing is they're trying to set some sort of trap for Jesus so that he'll make a mistake, so that he'll even potentially, you know, sin or somehow will discredit him. And that's what they are doing. And we've seen this a number of times over the last weeks that we get an insight as we read the narratives here in Mark of what uh, Satan is doing and even what happens in our own hearts, in the sinfulness of our hearts, there's the same kind of testing or entrapment that happens. We're somehow There is a discrediting that is trying to happen within our own hearts. And it still happens. All the way back in the Old Testament, in Genesis 4, if you're familiar with some of the early stories there, there's a story of Cain and Abel, right? The two brothers who interact with God and are trying to sacrifice and please God. And Cain's sacrifice is not pleasing to God. And when God comes to confront Cain... He gives him this image of what's actually happening on the scene. And it's actually something that's happened in Cain's heart. But the description is very different. So in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, it says this. This is God talking to Cain. If you do well, so Cain, if you follow my instructions on how to worship me and live towards me. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain's not feeling that acceptance. Then it says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is telling Cain, he's saying, Cain, you are you are contemplating things within you that are rooted in sin. And God actually describes it like this crouching lion at your door. And I don't know if you have a cat at home. I have a cat at home. I've been pounced on at times, okay? (laughs) You know, a cat waiting, luring on the side. And it's like waiting for me to take that step and to get me. That's what God is using, this picture for Cain to see what's actually happening. Cain, you're contemplating things that are outside of my will. And it's like entrapment waiting outside the door for you trying to get you to stumble. In First Peter, Peter also uses this same kind of imagery, this imagery of a lion. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, when talking to the Christians there who are under persecution and who are also contemplating things, they're contemplating not following God because it seems way too hard and it seems like There's too much difficulty and persecution around them. And Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Like have your eyes open to what's actually going on in your heart and maybe even in the world around you. And he says, your adversary, the, the common enemy that we have as believers, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking, seeking someone to devour. And Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. So just like, just like God comes to Cain and says, this is actually what's going on, Cain. This is what you need to be aware of, that there is something that is, that is wanting to trip you up. Peter says that to believers in the first century as well. There is something, it could be within you, it could be outside of you, that is there that wants to trip you up and make it difficult for you to follow in the way of Christ. And to being a disciple of Christ, and that is the very thing that is happening to Jesus here, and it's helpful for us because it again it gives us an insight into what's happening behind the scenes, maybe the things that we can't see. And I was trying to think of you know an example of of that, and I thought of um, the ultrasound. It's been a long time since. Liz and I, well, Liz had an ultrasound, okay, Um, but I was there, okay, I got to watch it, but you know how an ultrasound works, right, where you get to, you get to see what's happening on the inside of the woman's body, right, that this baby is forming, and you can see it kind of from the outside, it looks like a big bump, okay, but this ultrasound gives you an inside look into what's happening, And this is what these truths actually show us. When we see a little phrase like, came in order to test him, we actually get an insight into what's going on. An insight into the the inner workings of the actions of these people. And so we as Christians should be critically thinking about the things that go on around us. We shouldn't be just like quickly responding to things and you know, not understanding the, the things that are happening in our hearts or happening in our world around us. God has given us ways to understand what is actually going on so that we can live with confidence. And like Chandler said, we can live with courage. And so Jesus here, in this moment of testing, listens to their question. And what is their question? Let's look here at verse 3. He answered them. Sorry, Their question is, we read it already, is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's at the end of verse 2. So their question is, is it lawful to divorce? And Jesus says this in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote, He wrote you this commandment, and then he goes on to explain more. So here we see that Jesus says, okay, the question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does Jesus do? This is really important. Jesus actually points back to the word of God. So when Jesus is in a moment of, in this moment it's testing, or some moment of questioning, what he does is he goes back to the word of God, and he asks these Pharisees, what does Moses say about this? And what they do is, they go to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24, where he actually gives them an allowance for divorce. And so in Deuteronomy 24, I'm, I don't think I included it in the, in the text, but in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and then it goes on with a few more verses. And that phrase right there, some indecency in her, That's really the question they're asking about. Jesus, what do you think about that phrase? Because in that day and age, there were two camps who were kind of divided on what that meant. Okay, two camps. One was the Shammai order or group of Pharisees who had a conservative view of that text. Which was basically this, that... They would allow divorce if there was a moral mistake. So if there was adultery or some kind of immorality, they would allow it. But that was basically it. Kind of held a strong, firm line on it. The other camp was more liberal, which is called the Hillel camp. And they, they opened the topic of divorce to kind of its widest interpretation. So it was also like, yes, immorality, you know, some sort of immoral act. But it was literally something as simple as like, burning bread, okay, or like spilling the soup, or maybe the wife isn't as, you know, good at doing laundry. Like, think of anything that comes to your mind. That was enough where it was like, bread's burnt, I'm out. Certificate of divorce, it's done, okay? So you had these two camps, really conservative, super limited interpretation of Deuteronomy verses, and then the other The liberal side is just like total openness and total ease. And so these religious leaders are coming here now and they're trying to trap Jesus, remember? They're trying to trap him. And so they say, Jesus, how do you interpret this? What side are you on? Are you on the conservative side of things? Or are you on the liberal side of things? Which side are you on? The hope is that he would pick one. The hope is that he would pick one, and then they could somehow, then they knew where he was, they pegged him in, and they could discredit him in some way. Or they could use his answer in some way against him. And Jesus, in that moment, knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he goes to the heart of the matter, rather than focusing on the particulars of these two groups, these two disciplines, he goes to the heart of the meaning of marriage itself. And so in verses 6 through 10, we see that he takes time to actually explain, okay, this is what marriage is. And and he's saying, listen, when you go back to Moses, you're going back to Deuteronomy 24, where he says, You know, Moses allowed that. You see that in verse 4. Moses allowed that. But Jesus asked in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And so Jesus is going all the way back to the Genesis narrative. To the first chapters of Genesis where we see what marriage is. And let's just look at that in a little bit of detail here. Starting in verse 6 where we get the meaning of marriage. Verse 6 says this. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here Jesus, rather than focusing on their debate of What type of divorce was allowed or not allowed? He says, let me tell you what God's design for marriage is. And then he goes into it in detail. And let's just think of it in three parts here. The first part is that part of, and God made them male and female. Where you have this amazing thing happening of difference coming together. Not just biological difference, which it's there in the text. He says male and female coming together. But you have two kinds of people coming together in the act of marriage. Which is a profound mystery. I think that's how Paul calls it, right? In Ephesians 5. It is a mystery how two people, two very different people, come together and covenant together. It's a, it's a wonderfully difficult ministry, mystery, right? It might be a ministry too, right? It's a mystery, okay? It's a wonderful mystery that two people can come together. Tim Keller, in his book, which is also called The Meaning of Marriage, in the first chapter, this is how he starts the book. He says this, I'm tired of listening to sentimental talks on marriage at weddings, in church, And in Sunday school, much of what I've heard on the subject has as much depth as a Hallmark card. Sorry, Tim, I might not be doing better. But then he goes on, while marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is a glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength. And let it, let it, sorry, and let it. Also it's also blood and sweat and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage, I know more any no marriage that I know any more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. The reality of marriages is, is that it's not a fairy tale, right? It's not sentimental. It doesn't even it doesn't even matter if you're very sentimental. I'm not a very sentimental guy, ask Liz. Although I did find this record recently that was called For Dreamers and For Lovers, okay? It's like an old 1960s symphony music, and I'm just, I'm loving it, but I'm not really sentimental. Like, I'm, I'm pretty plain, okay? But marriage is not built on sentimentality. I agree with Tim Keller. The reality of it is there's this mystery of two people coming together. And what happens then in that mystery? Well, you go on here in verse 8, it says, what happens is actually the two shall become one flesh. The two actually become one. And he's not just talking about the sexual act, which is definitely two becoming one. But he's talking about this mystery of two people coming together and, and becoming one together. Usually over long periods of time, right? Because when we're first together, there's not a lot of it. Right, there's a lot of separation. Miroslav Volv, who's a theologian, puts it this way, and like only a theologian can put it: this becoming one flesh is sustaining and renewing covenants between two persons and groups requires the work of mutual making space for the other in the self, and of rearranging the self in light of other other's person presence. Okay, that's what a theologian does. Basically, he's saying there is a give and take. There is reciprocity. There is reciprocal love being given back and forth. There's space being made for the difference of the other. And then there's space being made on the other side as well, which makes it so difficult and hard. And yet, in this mystery, two people, two individuals come together and they are made into one flesh. This is Jesus again. Remember, this is Jesus' teaching. I'm just pulling it right out of the text here of what marriage is. Remember, the the question is divorce. And Jesus is just like, put that question to the side. See what God's design for marriage is. It's two people coming together, being made into one flesh. And this is a giving and a taking. It's a, a working back and forth. And I know that for... My own marriage, for Liz and I, this is like, we're coming on 25 years here now, and this is the process is still going on of this becoming one flesh. And we often, you know, we sit down with people when we're doing premarital counseling or something, and we're like, man, the one example we often talk about is like eating meals together. You know, we're very different even in how we ate meals together. And so when we would sit down early in our marriage, I would just sit down and eat, like there's no need for chit chat, right we're just we're eating dinner, so we're just sitting down to eat and Liz is sitting down on the other side thinking like, "Is there a problem here, or like, do we need to work something out? There's no words being exchanged, and it's just we were different, okay, and this becoming one flesh needed time to work itself out, and it's a difficult process, but it's actually the the design of God, which then leads to. The last part, verse 9, where we see that God is actually the marriage maker. God is the one who's doing the actual ceremony of marrying. Look at verse 9 again. It says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And that's maybe the line that the rabbis were linking on to, because basically Jesus is saying there is no room for divorce actually. What God is actually bringing together, God is the one who's doing it. And so if you're married, you'll remember saying the vows where you would say something like, I take you, Mary, to be my wife. I promise before God and these witnesses. When we say the vows, we're saying them to God. Especially in a Christian marriage, we're saying before God, this is what's happening. Because God is the one who's pulling these two people together. It may be recognized by the state, it may be even recognized by the people that are here, but God is the one, Jesus is saying here, that God is the one who is joining them together in this moment of marriage. And so Jesus is saying here to the disciples, marriage is is not a... Choice of convenience that you can conveniently choose out of. Because that's what the disciples and the, the rabbis here, the Pharisees, were trying to figure out. Whose side is he on? Conservative or liberal? And Jesus says, throw those categories away. Here's God's design for marriage. So let me just say quickly just a word of practicality, okay, for those of you who are married. Differences individually, are for your collective good. That applies for us as as a church, even. When you come together in missional families, there's going to be people that maybe rub you the wrong way. There's going to be people that you're like, I wish they were in a different missional family so I could love them from a distance, you know, Um, from across the sanctuary, you know. That you can, okay, we got that perspective, but the church actually is meant to be made better because of those differences. And it's the same, actually, when we come to the area of marriage, that two different people actually are different on purpose by God's design, and they are meant to shape each other. And they are meant to, for each other's good, be committed to that difference. But when we're honest, that is the most difficult thing about marriage, right? That we are different. And most days we just wish that those differences would be gone. And then we would have the perfect marriage. But that's not the reality. And that's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't dance in these kind of like fairy tale lands, right? Jesus teaches to the practicality of our life. Jesus is not afraid to tell us the truth. That as hard as the differences are, that is actually the very nature and the very thing that makes marriage unique. So differences in individuals being brought together, that difference actually matters. So don't shy away when your husband maybe also is eating at the table without talking, okay? I've been there. All right, maybe there's a few others. Don't shy away from that. See that as something that you want to grow together in, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that... I'm still sitting at the dinner table here 25 years later, I hope, not most of the time, not saying anything, okay? There's been some growth in my life and growth in Liz's life. So the difference actually may not always stay. But secondly, and and this is a theme that we have been hitting for weeks in a row now, secondly is that self-sacrifice is the calling within marriage. So we talked about that for a number of weeks in a row here already how the calling of a disciple of Jesus is one of self-sacrifice and now here we see again within the teaching on marriage is one of self-sacrifice again in the most intimate relationship it is one of self-sacrifice of doing the thing for someone else that you would rather them doing for you so whatever it is I don't know what comes into your mind But in the home context, usually there's a lot of things where it is easy to to not be self-sacrificing. Little things like dishes or taking out the garbage or changing a diaper or, I don't know, having a conversation. Maybe something even more significant of saying, like, there's a problem here. We need to talk about this. The road of self-sacrifice is taking that on and saying, I will do that. I will initiate that conversation. I will do those dishes, okay? I will do something different for my spouse, for the one that I love. It's a role of self-sacrifice. So after Jesus teaches on the meaning of marriage and lays it out there, how is it that the disciples actually take this in? Are they just like, that's great. I, you should write a book on that call it the meaning of marriage, okay? I, they don't actually take it that way because it's a really hard teaching. It's a really difficult teaching. Look again at verse 10. Look at what what is written here. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They're, like most things, they're confused again. This is a really difficult teaching. They would probably be much more satisfied with one of the two camps. Like, pick the liberal camp or pick the conservative camp. It's just easier. We know where to slot you, Jesus. But now what you're saying is divorce is not the road for God's people, and that is way too difficult. for. Like They're like, are you serious? Is that your teaching? Matthew's gospel is a little bit more clear. Matthew, in retelling this, he says this in Matthew chapter 19 verse 10. The disciples said to him, "If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry." They're like, "If that's how this is going to go down, people shouldn't even get married then because we're used to that easy out clause." We're used to, like, there's at least some sort of option. Burnt toast, you know, immorality. There's some sort of exit strategy here. And now Jesus is saying, no, here's your calling. You are together. You are in this bond of covenant marriage. And they're saying, this is way too difficult. Which, again, is so comforting for us as Christians to see that. Because all of us know how difficult it is to maintain friendships to maintain family relationships. And if we're married, we know how difficult it is to maintain a marriage. And maybe there's some within here who have experienced divorce themselves. Or maybe you come from a family that experiences divorce. I bet most families in here that are represented have some sort of members maybe who have been divorced or maybe parents who've been divorced. It's touched so many of our lives. And so we come to a text like this and we're like the disciples too. We're just like, if that's the standard, that can't be true because it's not the reality that we live. And yet Jesus here gives them the truth and says, this is the calling of what it means to be married in God's kingdom. James Edwards, in his commentary, I think brings out a great awareness for us. Because it places this marriage topic, not not just solely the idea of marriage, but it's actually within the context of discipleship, which is the context of these passages. So that means if you're single... If you're married, if you're divorced, whatever your category is, this teaching is actually for you. James Edwards writes this. The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The answer to that question is assured in Romans 3.28. All sins and blasphemies of me will be forgiven. So that question is solved. So what is he going at here? James continues, the question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will bear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. Will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty, or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? So Jesus' teaching here is really on the idea of deep discipleship, that we will follow God and His way no matter the cost, no matter how difficult. And so Jesus' message is clear that he is the king, and that arguments put aside, God's way is actually the primary way. It's the vision for his people. And in these chapters on discipleship, the question always ringing in our ears should be will we let Jesus be king? Will we let his teachings reign in our hearts? Will we follow him on the road to this kingdom? But it doesn't end there. Let's end with this last little section, which kind of on first glance feels like a totally separate thing because the the subject changes to children. And so in verse 13, it says this, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus here is showing his cards to the revolution that he is living out, and giving to his people. And I use that word revolution on purpose. If you look up the word revolution in the dictionary, the first one that comes up is this, a forcible overthrow of a government or social order. Okay, that's not what Jesus is doing, okay? He is not forcing himself over the Roman government, but different Different definitions of revolution actually work for what Jesus is doing. And listen to this one. A revolution is also a dramatic and wide-reaching change in conditions, attitudes, and operation. So Jesus, when it comes to children, actually wants to change the paradigm of the Roman and the Jewish world that they were used to living in. Because in the Roman world, children were... uh, Way down the line of interest for the family there 's a a letter that was uh, discovered, a papyrus letter um, from around the time of Christ, the early first century there of a Roman man who's writing a letter home to his wife he's out on like a business trip or something or maybe he's with the military I forget he writes home to her and he's kind of like asking how things going he knows that she's actually pregnant and so one of the lines that stands out from this letter from 1 AD is this if it is a male child let it live if it was a female cast it out And the thing that strikes historians about this letter is the casualness of what he's saying there. It's kind of like, how are the neighbors doing? Is the roof leaking at all? Oh yeah, and you're going to have a baby. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, just put her out on the street and she'll either be collected or she'll die. Just like casual. And that is the Roman view of children. The one that would have definitely been experienced by uh, Jewish people in Israel at that time. Seeing their Roman neighbors. But the Israelites, the Jewish people, had a a little bit of a different perspective. But not that much more. Children still not of huge value. I think I said this last week. They're kind of like an insurance policy for the future. It's like you're hoping that... Maybe if you have 10 kids, maybe like three or four will survive and they'll be able to help you with the business and the home in the future. So you hold very loosely to the children that you have. But here comes Jesus now. And people are bringing, from the, from the text, it seems like people are even bringing like babies or young toddlers. And so here Jesus gives a totally new paradigm. One that his disciples don't even get. But he says, here's the paradigm, bring them to me. There is something unique about children where the kingdom of God can actually enter in and reside within them. Children, and we know this, children can express their hearts in ways that most of us don't do it anymore, right? We've like got a governor on our, you know, we don't. We don't scream when someone comes home from the grocery store, okay? Like when a dad or a mom comes in, kids are just like, ah, you know, like this greatest thing on the planet has happened, and they just came back from the grocery store, okay? Or I remember, I think it happened here, um, someone, you know, reading a scripture reading, and kids being like, yeah, cheering for them, right? We don't do that anymore as adults. Kids just like, what's going on in their hearts? They just let it out, And Jesus says, that's actually the kind of soil where the kingdom of God can reside and grow. It's a heart that is open. It's a heart that hasn't been jaded by hurts. hasn't been jaded by experiences. It hasn't been dashed by all kinds of ups and downs in life. It is a open heart that when the kingdom of God, when the seed of God is planted in it, it grows and it actually thrives. You know, statistically, if you were to ask 20 adults around the age of 25, 20 adults who are Christians, when they came to faith, 19 out of 20 of them would say under the age of 20 years old. That's when the majority of us became believers, actually. Where the seed of the gospel was planted was in our young years as children. And Jesus says, this is the place where the kingdom of God actually resides and is planted. And so here at Citizens as well, we want our kids to be safe in life here in the church. We want them to hear the gospel of Jesus. We want them to understand who Jesus is so that the gospel seed can be planted in their hearts And we want them to be a part of this church. So this is why we've even designed missional families. To include them as much as possible. So that they experience the life. All of the life of the body of Christ. As much as possible. Their shoulders rub with our shoulders. Even if they're just running by at a fast speed. Right? There's some like rubbing that's happening as they're running by. The kingdom of God is for these. So... Jesus is coming to the disciples and saying, discipleship looks like this. It is deep discipleship. It is in the hearts of children. It is in the covenant of marriage. It's even in the testing that is happening as Satan is trying to shake the foundations of our world. In Genesis chapter 15, let's close with this. Abram is trying to make sense of this promise that God has made to him. That there would be some child that would be born to his family. And there would be, you know, like the stars and the sky. And in that text, Abram is saying, this can't be true. This can't be how it's going to work. It's not working so far. So how is this actually going to happen? And it's a, it's a chapter of doubt and wrestling with the truth and the reality of what God is saying to Abram. And God in that moment comes to him and wants to show him physically the the promises that he is giving to him. And so he says to Abram, he says, take a goat, take a ram, take a dove, and take a pigeon and cut them open for a sacrifice and lay them on the side. Like picture it here in this this little walkway here, Let separate them and lay one side on one side and one side on the other side. And I'm going to make a sacrifice to show you that the promises that I've given to you are true and real and they are based on my goodness, not yours. And so Abram does this and in the text you can just see like Abram is doing these things but he's still confused. He still doesn't know what is God doing here. And God then in the night comes and in this like kind of strange picture, a burning torch and a smoking bowl goes through the middle of these carcasses. And it's actually a picture of God himself going through these sacrifices. And in that moment, God is saying to Abram, and he's still saying the same to us today, I would rather die than break my promises to you the truth that i'm giving to you as hard as it is to take in as difficult as it is to believe i would rather die than not be the one to fulfill the reality of what needs to happen and so if you're sitting here today wondering just like the disciples just like abram god i don't know if this is actually how it's supposed to be i don't know if the the kingdom of god is going to come about in my life it seems too hard God is saying to you today, it's based on my promises. The kingdom of God comes through God. And in our weakness, and in our faulty life, God says, I will be faithful. I would rather die than break my promises. And he proved that on the cross when he actually did take our place and died so that we could enter into life with him And all we do is put our hope and our trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this difficult text. It's hard, Lord, for us to take in. And Lord, I confess it's even hard to preach. And yet, Lord, what we hold on to as your children is your goodness and your grace towards us. Lord, help us today to take one step nearer to you And let go of ourselves and let us put our trust in your ways, in your kingdom, so that you, our king, would be glorified.